As you're turning in your Bibles to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, let me just take a moment to tell all of you how much my wife Judy and I appreciate the invitation to be with you this morning and tonight. We have been looking forward to this ever since the invitation was extended last year. And ever since uh, I was invited, I've been thinking about how I would approach these two lessons uh, and, and, and how I would present them in such a way as to not only challenge and motivate all of us, but to cause us to think about what Jesus says about every aspect of life. And we'll get into, into that in just a moment. But it is a wonderful privilege for me to be here today and to share God's Word with you and to share in this series with you revolving around the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I, could say a, I could say a lot of things about several people in the audience who are members here that I have known through the years who have been great sources of encouragement to me. I uh, do want to, to single out my, my good friend Phil Barnes, whom I grew up with at the old Franklin Road Congregation. Of course, his wife, Wanda, whom I've known and appreciated for many, many years. And they've, they've always been great friends and great encouragement, and I, and I mean that sincerely. Uh, I could tell you stories about conversations we've had, good times we've had, but also great discussions about the Word of God. And that's always a great encouragement. I know some of you have, have met my friend Charlie McCann, whom I sing with in the Music City Chorus and his friend Betty Shelton, who sings with my wife and with Wanda in uh, a Sweet Adeline chorus in Nashville. And uh, we appreciate them very much as well. And I don't mean to leave anybody out, but you know who you are that I've known through the years and that have appreciated your strength and your faith and your encouragement of my efforts to live the Christian life and to preach the gospel. And that, of course, is why we're here this morning, so I won't spend any more time. But since we're talking about living the sermon on the job, we'll get right down to business. And I will say one more thing. I would ask Edwin to show a little mercy to my good friend Tina Garrett, who confessed to me that she pilfered a copy of this morning's outline from the copy room. So, so bear, bear with Tina. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but we love them very, very much as well. I certainly, well, I, I have read many things, of course, about the Sermon on the Mount, and many believe that what we call the Sermon on the Mount was the official beginning of Jesus' ministry on earth. I don't know if I would go that far, but certainly this is the first recorded sermon of our Lord that he preached to uh, a significant number of people, and as he began this sermon and began his ministry, he began to establish, well, he, he began to help people understand that his ministry would be controversial. But not only controversial, but it would be challenging and thought-provoking. Because Jesus, I believe, does clarify in the Sermon on the Mount, does clarify many of the Jews' misunderstandings about and their misinterpretations of the law of Moses. And that's just one of the purposes, I believe, that Jesus had for preaching the Sermon on the Mount. But that was only one of his purposes. I believe one of his other purposes was to help those people understand that the principles he was about to teach 
would apply to every aspect of their lives. And that was important not only for them, but it's important for us because we are told many times in our society that we need to separate our faith from our everyday lives. You know, we have debates uh, almost on a weekly basis about the so-called separation between church and state, and I won't spend a lot of time debating that. But because of that philosophy, we're often told that we need to leave our faith in our churches and that religion is only for Sundays. When we come to church and, and come together and worship God together, we should, we should leave our faith in our churches and not bring it into our everyday lives. Aren't we told that? And sometimes we as Christians fall into the trap of going along with that and, and falling into the trap of becoming like the society around us. And because we want to be accepted, we want to be in the in crowd, we want to be successful in life, and not just in our family lives, but we want to be successful on the job and in our chosen career. But despite society's attempts to keep religion only in the churches on Sundays, Christ teaches in the Sermon on the Mount that his disciples cannot separate their faith from their everyday lives, including their lives on the job. So I believe firmly that the theme for this particular lesson is found in Matthew chapter 7. What do I need to do? Uh, there we go. The theme of this lesson is found in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, what we call the golden rule, where Jesus said, Therefore, whatever you, would, whatever you want men to do unto you, do ye even so to them. And I'll get to that in just a second. The golden rule applies to every aspect of our lives, including our lives on the job, when we encounter people of different faith, but also when we encounter people who do not believe in God and who have no interest in learning more about the Lord Jesus Christ. We encounter all sorts of people from different cultures in the chosen careers that we have chosen. But Jesus is teaching in the golden rule that whatever we want men to do unto us, we should also do unto them. And that's an important principle for us to follow as we not only think about being successful in the job, but as we think about the kind of example that Jesus wants us to set for everyone whom we encounter on the job. I want to begin this morning by just briefly looking at, at, at several jobs that I have held in the past, uh, just to give you a, a frame of reference for me in my adult life. Uh, you might, as you look at this list, you might say that, well, he's a jack of all trades and master of none. And I resemble that. Fortunately, I married a Jill of all trades, and she's master of all that she does. So I think we balance each other out pretty well. But uh, as I've held all of these jobs, I, I, I have always tried to set the proper example, and I hope that I have. And I had great examples in my father and grandparents and, and other people who set the example for me. And, and, and some of those people were not gospel preachers, but they were successful business people, doctors, lawyers, accountants, engineers, 
uh, even janitors and salespeople. I have tried to emulate the example of many of those people, but of course, the example that I've tried to emulate most of all is the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as I've, uh, regardless of what career, what jobs I have held, including preaching the gospel for 30 years, hopefully I have done what I could to set that example. I know that I haven't been perfect in always setting the, the right example. But I strive to day by day, and so should we. And Jesus wants us to think about our example every day, to think about whom we encounter, to think about the people that we're striving to influence for good and influence for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I said, the key to this lesson is the, sir, is the golden rule. But there are four or five things I want to focus on briefly this morning as, we, as Jesus talks about living the, the sermon on the job in our, our everyday lives. We know, of course, that in all of our careers, there are times when we have conflicts with other people. There are times when people rub us the wrong way. Or maybe there are times when we rub people the wrong way on the job. Or maybe somebody's having a bad day and we get into an argument with someone. We often fail to realize that Jesus does give us the principles we need for every situation of life, including the situation of resolving conflicts, whether it be in our home, whether it be in the church with each other as Christians, or whether it be on the job. I'm afraid that too many of us as Christians have overlooked Jesus' simple teaching about resolving conflicts in any situation. Look with me at chapter 5 of the book of Matthew and verse 21. Jesus said in verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, and this is the, the, the beginning of his clarification, I believe, of their misunderstandings of the law of Moses. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, which in Aramaic literally means you empty head or you blockhead, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire or Gehenna, depending on your translation. So Jesus not only clarifies their misunderstandings about what the law of Moses actually taught, he says, I want you to understand that you don't, you don't need to even be angry with your brother without a cause or angry with your neighbor without a cause. And the first thing he says in, in terms of helping them understand how to resolve conflicts is that you need to avoid name-calling. Avoid situations in which you get angry with someone else or they start the argument and you go along with the argument and you, and you, you end up stooping to their level of name-calling. You get into the argument with them. And we all know that once people get into a heated argument with each other, there's no rational thought going on. They're not going to solve the problem as long as they remain in the heated argument and as long as they continue to call each other names. Are they? Absolutely not. And so the first step Jesus gives to us concerning resolving conflicts is to avoid name-calling, 
avoid the situation where we, we stoop to the other person's level or where we try to, we try to elevate ourselves above them. In Ephesians chapter 4, toward the end of that chapter, Paul says a lot of things about how we are to treat one another, including how we resolve conflicts and how we should avoid misuse of the tongue. But he says in verse 29, first of all, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace unto the hearers. And then in verse 31 he says, Let all bitterness and wrath, clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. When there's a conflict, and conflicts will occur, when there is a conflict, that is not the time for us to get into heated arguments with one another where we end up calling each other names, but it is the time for us to sit down together whether it's in the church, in the home, or on the job, sit down with that person with whom we disagree and say, how can we resolve this? How can we work this out reasonably and rationally? Because Jesus basically says in verses 21 and 22, the person who stoops to the level of name-calling is actually guilty of murder in the heart. That's exactly what Jesus is teaching. And we must not allow that to creep into our hearts. The second step that Jesus gives us in verses 23 and 24 is not to ignore the problem. He says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and then you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Don't sweep the problem under the rug. Don't ignore it because it's not going to go away. In fact, not only is Jesus teaching them that until they solve their problems with their brother, their worship is absolutely meaningless. Not only is he teaching that, he's also teaching that your, your success and your productivity on the job is going to suffer tremendously until you solve your problems with your neighbor. Until we take the time and make the effort to be reconciled to that brother or to that co-worker, until we take the time to resolve the conflict, the conflict is not going to go away and we're not going to be able to do our job as our boss wants us to and we're not going to be able to do our job as God wants us to. Isn't Jesus teaching that principle? And then in verses 25 and 26, he says, you need to resolve the problem quickly. He says, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be, or you, and you be thrown in prison, or in some cases today, uh, terminated from your job. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. And we can apply this teaching to many different situations of life. But we're applying it right now to, 
to the idea of resolving conflicts on the job, Jesus tells all of us as Christians that in order for us to be successful in the Lord's church, in order for His church to grow, whenever there's a problem, it must be resolved. It must never be swept under the rug like, like has happened too many times in the past among us, and we cannot deny it. Not only must that be so, but we must resolve any kind of conflict in any situation and do it quickly. And then in verses 43 through 48 of Matthew 5, Jesus also presents a challenging thought to those disciples. For he told them in verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Every time I read this passage, I'm reminded of a story I heard many years ago concerning Brother James Cope, who was president of Florida College for many years. And it seems that a former student or someone who used to be connected with the college was, was going public in the newspapers about his disagreement with the college, his criticism of the college, and then basically trying to destroy the college. And someone asked Brother Cope, don't you just hate that person? And Brother Cope said, how can I hate somebody that I'm praying for? Instead of retaliating, we must pray for our enemies. And doesn't that go a long way toward resolving problems? Praying for one another? in whatever situation of life. And I'll go one step further, even though it's not on the slide. In chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, Jesus also makes it clear that in whatever situa situation of life we may be, He says we need to forgive those who sin against us. Whosoever shall forgive if, if you forgive men their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, Neither will your Heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. That applies to every situation of life, including our lives on the job. So Jesus deals with that situation of how to live the sermon on the job, how to solve our problems, and work together, even with those who have no faith in God and no interest in serving God. The second thing Jesus touches on, or that I want to apply to this lesson, is in verses 27 through 32, which I have called Romance on the Job. We all know that there are situations in which people are tempted on the job to fall in love with a co-worker. And unfortunately, there are times when married people fall, quote, fall in love with one another, even though they have no scriptural right to do so. Jesus not only talks about any situation of marital infidelity or any kind of sexual immorality, but we can apply the principles he teaches to our lives on the job. And I did some research on the Internet about romance in the workplace. And one of the websites I looked at was, was actually from a, a surveillance group or, or a private detective agency 
And they said, according to the latest statistics, the workplace is the number one place for married people who commit adultery to meet the other person. And that's a staggering comment. And a staggering comment on our society. We know that Satan uses many different methods to lure people in, into sin, to lure people into sexual immorality, whether they are unmarried or whether they are married and, and, and fall into the trap of falling in love with other married people. But one of the greatest sources of temptation is the workplace. And we know, of course, unfortunately, that preachers are not immune from that as well. I'll never forget Brother Bill Cavender coming to Florida College when I was still a student there in 1978 and talking to us so-called preacher boys about many different subjects. But one of the things he touched on and emphasized was that we should never get ourselves into a situation in which we are alone with another woman. Even if we're counseling that person and trying to help that woman with different problems and different situations, we should never even allow them to come into our offices by themselves with no one else there. And that's just that, that, that sounds crazy to a lot of people. But it's just common sense. And it, and it goes along with what Jesus said in verse 27. For he said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whosoever looks at a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And we could draw many lessons just from that one verse. The one lesson that all of us need to be aware of as we live our everyday lives on the job is that there are temptations out there. And even, even though we consider ourselves to be strong in the faith, and even though we sometimes tell ourselves that we would never fall prey to that temptation, we better be careful and never assume that we would never fall prey to that temptation. I learned a long time ago to never say never about anything. Because Jesus warns all of us about that kind of attitude. And Jesus very simply says, whoever looks on a woman to lust for her, in other, in other words, to covet her, and to have such a strong desire for her that he would give up everything else, whoever looks on her to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. That's a strong statement. In fact, I believe Jesus was giving an illustration of what God taught in the Tenth Commandment. And we, we often limit that verse to saying, Thou shalt not covet. But notice what the entire verse said. God told the Israelites, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Then he says, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Now, why is covetousness so wrong? It's because we desire to have something that cannot be ours, something that is not ours, and something that cannot be ours. 
including our neighbor's wife. We know what, well, well in, in verses 28 through 30, he makes some comments about plucking out your right eye if it causes you to sin in your right hand and so on. I believe what Jesus is actually teaching is what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18, where he said to flee sexual immorality. In other words, don't let any part of your, your body or any part of your mind cause you to cross over that border, cross that boundary, and commit the sin of sexual immorality. That's what Jesus was teaching. And in verse 30 he says, If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. As we think about this idea of fleeing sexual immorality, I want to take us back to Genesis 39. And think about, think about this question. You know, we, we, we preach many lessons about the life of Joseph. And of course, one of the most traumatic incidents in Joseph's life was when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him to lie with her and to commit adultery with her. The first thing that, that should stick out in our minds is, wasn't Joseph on the job when Potiphar's wife seduced him or tried to seduce him? Wasn't he doing his everyday job when she tried to lure him into her trap and, and lie with her and commit adultery with her? We, we know, of course, and we commend Joseph for running away from her. Even after she grabbed his robe and accused him falsely and had him thrown into prison, he fleed from sexual immorality. And we've got to emphasize that to our young people today and of all generations, but also emphasize that to us as adults. Because we're not immune from it either. Yes, it's important for our young people to, to, to know that God does not want them to have sexual relations before marriage because that gets them into a lot of trouble besides the fact that it's fornication. But we as adults also need to remember that we're tempted, and sometimes we're tempted even more than our young people. And we've got to flee sexual immorality just as much as our young people. You remember what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 22, when he said to abstain from every form of evil. He didn't specify what types of evil or what types of sins he was saying that we should stay away from. He says abstain from every form or appearance of evil. And it's easy sometimes when you're on the job and you're having lunch with somebody in the cafeteria and they start talking about their, their family problems or talking about their financial problems. And it's easy to get swept up in concern and sympathy for their problems and, and to eventually become so sympathetic that we spend more and more time talking to them and discussing those things with them. And we end up getting too close and end up forgetting what our priorities are. Forgetting our relationship with God and with Jesus Christ. Forgetting our relationship with our spouse and our family. And that other person becomes more important. It doesn't happen overnight, folks. 
It happens gradually. And that's how Satan works in any kind of sin, including sexual immorality on the job. Also, sexual immorality, of course, is a violation of the golden rule. And here's what I mean by that. What I mean is it causes sin not only against you, not only against God, but sexual immorality causes sin against other people. And let's illustrate what we're talking about. The question is, who is sinned against when there is infidelity on the job or any kind of marital infidelity? Who is sinned against? You know, we hear some people say, well, I'm not hurting anybody else but myself. With any kind of sin, that's a lie. But it's especially a lie when we talk about sexual immorality between married people. Who is sinned against? First of all, God is sinned against. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost who is in you, which you have from God, and you are not your own? Therefore you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which belong to God. I am not my own. I don't have the power to do whatever I want to with my body. As a Christian, I don't. And Paul says, when you commit sexual immorality, you do sin against God. But you also sin against your own spouse and your family. I want to look briefly at, at some comments that Solomon made in Proverbs chapter 5, of 5 and 6. In Proverbs 5 and verse 15, Solomon said, Drink water from your own cistern, and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountains be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured or intoxicated, as some versions put it, intoxicated with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? And as we apply it to our situation, we're not just talking about woman, women who seduce men. We're also talking about men who seduce women. Because it, both situations apply in our society. But Solomon says, why would you give up the love of the, of the woman that you have given your life to? Why would you give up her love and give up your responsibility to her and, and to your family in order to be enraptured or intoxicated by an immoral woman? Why would you just throw it all away? Because you've not only sinned against God, but against your spouse and your family, but you've also sinned against that other person. Now, I know that the other person is also guilty of sin. Bathsheba was also guilty of sin just as much as King David. But the fact remains that you have sinned against the other person. Not only do you sin against the other person, but you've also sinned against the other person's spouse, and their family. It's not just you that you're hurting. 
In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 34, notice the plain statement that Solomon makes when he says, For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give many gifts. You can't take back what you've done to that person's family and spouse. And we know what problems infidelity creates. You know, we look at what goes on in Hollywood when, when all of those actors and actresses trade spouse after spouse after spouse in order to find somebody else that can give them more satisfaction, that can give them more things, and they tell us that the grass is always greener in the next pasture. And Solomon says, you don't know what you're talking about. Because you're causing grief and trauma and suffering, not only between yourself and the other person, but between your family and that other person's family. And last of all, in Proverbs 6, Solomon says, you're sinning against yourself. In verse 24, or verse 25, he says, Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids, for by means of a harlot a man is reduced to a crust of bread. And he goes on in the next few verses that you can read for yourselves to talk about how a person is so traumatically affected in every aspect of their life simply because they gave in to sexual immorality. Simply because they gave in to the lust of their heart and the desires of their heart because someone else tempted them or seduced them and they gave in to it. Paul says, flee sexual immorality because it will destroy you. And Jesus says the same thing. The third thing that, that we want to look at that Jesus discusses in the Sermon on the Mount is in verses 33 through, through 42, and we'll summarize these verses. But I've entitled this section that Jesus is talking about the old adage that says, honesty is the best policy. In verses 33 through 37, I believe Jesus is partly talking to them about how important it is to keep their promises in any situation of life. We know from the very beginning of the Word of God, God has emphasized that whenever you make a promise or whenever you make an oath or a vow to someone else, you better keep that vow. And not only a vow to God, but when you make a vow to your neighbor, you will keep that vow. And that also applies to the workplace where we make promises or commitments to different people. Whenever we sign a contract, to start working for a certain company, don't we sign our name on the bottom line and make a promise and a commitment and a vow to follow the regulations and rules of that company? Now, I know that there are times when your boss may want you to do things that are contrary to the Word of God, and I know that we have to make a decision to, to keep our commitment to God more importantly than our commitment to the employer in that situation. But when we sign on the dotted line, we agree to follow the rules and regulations that have been set forth by that company. 
and by that employer. And that's part of being honest. And Jesus is teaching them to be honest and truthful and keep their promises in every situation. Also in those verses, Jesus talks about being truthful. And he's not just talking about the situation where we go into court and we affirm or promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Sometimes we've applied these verses only to that situation. But Jesus is teaching about being honest and truthful in every situation of life. And as he goes on in that section, he also says in verses 38 through 42, not to seek vengeance when we are wronged in some way. He said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If he wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And I know that there's a lot of misunderstanding about what that verse actually means. And there are a lot of customs in the ancient times that are no longer customs among people today in the world. But I believe the overriding principle that Jesus was teaching them and teaching us is to never take personal vengeance against someone who does us wrong in any situation. And that's, that's difficult to do because whenever someone does us wrong or calls us names or tries to mock us or tries to destroy us, the first thing we want to do is return the favor. And Jesus says, you can't do that. We know what Paul said in Romans chapter 12 and verse 19, where he said, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, because it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, give him food. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you shall heap coals of fire upon his head. And then he closed by saying, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In many situations of life, the best thing for us to do is to keep our mouths shut and simply pray about the situation. Pray for that other person and let God take care of the situation. Now, I know that sounds hokey to a lot of people and doesn't make sense to people of the world because the world tells us you need to protect yourself. You need to take vengeance upon those people. And I know that, that in many companies there is a grievance procedure that you can go through in order to resolve a problem or in order to take care of an injustice. And you need to take advantage of that. Jesus is not teaching that you can never defend yourself. You can defend yourself in many situations, but never seek vengeance when you're wronged, even on the job. And then in verse 41, I believe we can apply this principle to, to this lesson by saying that Jesus also wants us to provide an honest day's work. We talked about having a good work ethic and working hard. And I was fortunate to have the example of, of two parents and two sets of grandparents 
who worked extremely hard to provide for their family, but also to provide a good example of honesty and hard work to me. And, I, and those are lessons that I can never repay and never forget. My mother's father, particularly, was a person who worked himself to the bone, but loved every minute of it. And more than anything else, he was not only concerned about his relationship to God, but he was also concerned about being honest with everybody he encountered. And that included providing an honest day's work. One of the first verses, Bible verses that my parents forced me to memorize was 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 10, where Paul said, If any would not work, neither should he eat. And I know that I haven't always worked hard in my life. But that verse has always stuck with me. And Jesus is teaching that principle, I believe. I want to share very quickly a, a poem that is attributed to, to the woman who is called Mother Teresa. It's called Anyway. And you may have heard this before. But the poem says, People are unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you are successful, you will win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. People favor underdogs but follow only top dogs. Fight for some underdogs anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People really need help, but they may attack you if you help them. Help them anyway. Give the world the best you have, and you'll get kicked in the teeth. But give the world the best you've got anyway. Jesus talked about going the second mile. And not only going the second mile with somebody on a physical journey in, in, in his day, but go the second mile with your neighbor and with your co-worker and to anyone who needs your help. I've done customer service workshops before where I emphasize to people in the hospitality industry and other industries that you need to strive to go the second mile. You need to strive to go above and beyond the call of customer service. And I'm thankful that many in the hospitality industry have started doing that. If you go to many hotels across this country, you'll begin to notice the fact that many of those customer service representatives are going above and beyond. Not only being friendly, but being helpful. And Jesus tells his people, you need to go above and beyond. Don't just do whatever's required. Do more than, than what's required as a Christian, and people will respect you for it. And you'll succeed not only in the job, but succeed with God. The next section, very quickly, is in chapter 6, where Jesus talks about whenever we, whenever we do charitable deeds, whenever we pray, and whenever we fast, we are not to do it to be seen of men, but to do it to the glory of our Father in heaven. 
Many times we ask the question, the question on the job, is there any time during my time on the job that, that I can just sit down and pray? There are many questions about a, a person bringing their religious faith into the workplace. Thankfully, many companies are, are, now, re, uh, are now relaxing some of their old requirements. And they're allowing people of faith to bring more of their faith into the workplace as long as they don't pressure people. But sometimes we Christians become timid when we ask ourselves, when is there a time during the day that I can pray or that I can, I can read my Bible or that I can share my faith with somebody else on the job? Some of you may or may not know that Wanda Barnes was converted to Christ in the early 80s. She reminded me a few weeks ago that she was converted to Christ as a result of a persistent invitation of someone that she worked with that worshipped at the old Franklin Road congregation. And Wanda said, okay, I'll go. I'll find out what this stuff is all about. And praise be to God, because of her faith and open heart, and because of the power of the gospel, she was converted to Jesus Christ. And I know Phil's happy about that as well, as well as the angels in heaven. But the workplace can be a, a wonderful source for us to share our faith and, and not do it in a haughty and boastful way, not do it in a pressuring way. But a simple invitation works wonders many times. And we forget about the power of an invitation and how simply inviting someone to come to worship can be the stepping stone to seeing that person converted to, to our Lord. And isn't that one of the most powerful lessons that we can learn and wonderful privileges that we can enjoy? Last of all, Jesus deals in chapter 6 with the idea of, of greed versus contentment. And that's something that a lot of us wrestle with on the job because we all want to be successful we want to provide many things for our families. In a sense, many of us do want to be praised and, and, and in a sense, elevated in our job situation. We want to get promotions, do we not? But many times we allow greed to take over. And we forget about what Jesus said in chapter 6 and verse 19, where he said, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where none of those things happen. And then he says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus says, keep your life and your possessions in the proper focus and perspective. And then he teaches us in verses 25 through 34 that God will provide even in the difficult times. Even when we're worrying about whether we're going to have enough food to put on the table, enough clothes to give our, our children, enough shelter and protection for our family. When we're worrying about whether we're going to be able to pay the bills at the end of the month, God will provide. Do we believe that? Jesus says you don't need to worry about those things. But what you do need to be concerned with is 
to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I hope you'll take time to, to look at the outline and study it for yourselves. And I know we've had to rush through some things this morning. But I want to close by, by once again saying that the workplace can be a great place to shine our lights. We can live the Sermon on the Mount on the job and in every situation of life, and we can let our light so shine before men that they will see our, our good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven. I hope that all of us have been challenged by this lesson, and I pray that all of us will think about our daily responsibilities to God, our daily responsibilities to our family, but also our daily responsibilities to our neighbors and our co-workers, because Jesus talks about that as well.